welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Emma Chatterton from Impact Lab. Now, Emma, you might have a few thoughts about education that we can talk about. You were, in fact, a teacher trained in England, is that right? Yeah, so I did my teacher training in 2011 and 2012 through a program with the University of Buckingham that meant you could exit straight from university into your teaching job and then learn whilst you were on the job for a year. Wow, that sounds like a a very efficient approach. And how did you find that approach? Honestly, I loved it. I mean, the first week was a real baptism of fire, standing up in front of a classroom. But there was some safety in knowing that the school had decided to offer you a job. And I actually had the opportunity to go in and observe the teachers um, the year before I started and get a good feeling. You had a good mentor teacher through the university and through the school. And really, teaching is the best way to learn. And being in the job for a whole year was hugely beneficial. We had a placement school, so I was working in another school for about two-thirds of the year, one day a week as well, so that you had some different perspective. We had residentials at the university during the holidays. And of course, in the UK, there's an NQT program that runs the year after graduation, so that mentoring is really ongoing. Sounds like an excellent experience. And after you graduated, you did teach in England for a while, is that right? Yeah, so I initially was teaching at a primary school and then moved into teaching in a couple of different secondary schools in the UK before moving back to New Zealand in 2015 and have since taught in schools in Auckland and Wellington, but left teaching sadly in 2019 to start something different, working at Impact Lab, where we are thinking about what social investment and social value is and what positive change really means in people's lives and the lives of our community. And Impact Lab's work is something I want to get into in this conversation. But first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience when you came back to New Zealand? You you sought to get to be a registered teacher here and uh, encountered a few difficulties. Yeah, honestly, it was an extremely stressful experience for both my husband and I. And I know there are so many other teachers out there that have experienced the same thing. So the first problem was really the IQA, which is the International Qualifications Assessment. And I know there's been some changes since I went through it. That's through NZQA, is that right? Through NZQA. So it's the process of getting your qualification recognised here as being a teaching qualification, which, I mean, I totally support. We want to know that teachers coming in have the right skill set to teach in our classrooms. From my perspective, the IQA process costs about $790 to fill in the form. And what that meant was really months of emails going backwards and forwards trying to understand what my degree qualification had been, what it involved and what that meant for coming into the New Zealand system as a teacher. Some of the questions they asked me as part of the process was to go back and give the details of the questions I was asked in any written assignments at university. They asked me to give them a written description of the British QTS standards, all of which is very freely available online. They wanted to know exactly what readings I'd done and studied when I did my university assignments. They wanted to know the exact number of sole charge teaching days that I had in placements in 2011. So this is going back four or five years. Information that you really don't actually hold at that four or five years into your teaching career. They also asked me to provide a list of details on what lectures I attended and what my seminar topics were and what was covered in residentials. It it was an extraordinarily complex process. Uh, In the end, I actually got the IQA back saying that they would recognise my teaching qualification. 
but a friend of mine who went through a very, very similar process, the graduate teacher program in the UK, had hers declined. Declined. She had a, a perfectly valid teaching qualification from the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And actually was far more qualified than me. So my friend had run the graduate teacher program and had been working in the UK for 12 years as a deputy head of a primary school. She had also done some additional training just for head teachers, for fast-tracking really high-quality teachers, came to New Zealand and was unable to teach. She worked here for a while on a limited authority to teach and tried to work with the system to get them to recognise her skills and experience. She had a job here, the school loved her, they wanted to keep her and ultimately this process has meant that she's gone off overseas and taught at other fantastic schools in different countries. So we have a teacher shortage in this country mm-hmm. and we're turning away really well qualified and experienced teachers who demonstrate success in New Zealand schools. Mm-hmm. Dear oh dear. I know. And, and so anyhow, back to your story, you did manage to get the NZQA recognition of your qualification. Mm-hmm. After that, you go to the Teaching Council to get approval that you meet the Teaching Council criteria. Is that right? That, that's the next step in the process. To get your practising certificate, yeah. So uh, te- and how was that for you? Once I had the IQA, that was a much more straightforward thing. Yeah. But it was really the, the difference is that in the, those UK programmes where you're not solely based in a university and you're actually out in the schools teaching all the time, The difficulty is aligning that with what the options are in New Zealand. It's more akin to what would happen in a master's program in New Zealand than a a graduate teaching program here. I see. So it's kind of speeding up our system to recognise that actually working for a year under the mentorship of uh, senior teachers and mentor teachers, often through a university, is actually a great way to learn. Mm. So what would you say to our politicians about what we need to do in terms of improving teacher supply through immigration? I think from my perspective, what was lacking was a recognition of the value of experience. I think we, in my process, it was very much hinged on what the qualification delivered rather than what the person was delivering to the workforce. Mm. A handbrake in our process was that they didn't consider anything other than the remit of the qualification itself. So it didn't matter that after the qualification you had continued to teach for five years and done additional work or had additional mentoring or run through the NQT program in the UK, which by the way, the NQT program in the UK involved all teachers doing numeracy tests, literacy tests and digital skills tests just to become a qualified teacher. So it's it's a really robust process. Mm. So I think it would be finding a way for our application process to value experience. What about the the sort of time frame of it? I mean, in your case, you were coming back to New Zealand anyway, but I think of a school that's trying to recruit a teacher and it gets some quality international applicants Mm. and they need to fill the position, say, at the beginning of the following term. Mm -hmm. Have they got any chance of doing that with somebody starting cold and needing to go through the NZQA process and then the teaching council process? I think it's very risky for a school. So what made it possible for me was coming back to a private school and a private school that had the vision to really value the experience and the international experience and perspective that I had from working in schools in the UK and want to take a punt on that. Mm. 
For them, it meant the risk of me arriving here without this documentation in place and knowing that really there were only 10 days then in which I could be in my role without it aligning. And I can't remember the exact time frame, but it really came down to within a week to having that documentation in place over a couple of months to be able to arrive and start a job that I had been offered. And through the process, the the IQA staff were aware that I had already been offered a job by a top private school in New Zealand and was just waiting for this documentation to kind of fall in line to be able to take that position up. Well, fortunate for the, the private school, of course, most schools are not private in New Zealand and the teacher shortage most acutely affects public schools and Lord knows our, our low decile end of the schooling system really is crying out for, for good teachers. I mean, there are some great teachers teaching across the board, but really our, our, those kids who are not learning to read well and not learning to write and do numeracy well are desperate for good teachers. Surely mm. we need to streamline the, the approach for getting quality teachers from international sources to help. I agree. And I think I'd lean back into the experience lens again. One of the things that was raised multiple times in the process for me was, how will you know how to teach NCEA coming from overseas? And part of the application that I wrote was, well, I actually studied in New Zealand and I went through NCEA myself. So I do understand the building blocks of how it works from a student perspective, even if not as a teacher. But that seems like a, a pretty silly reason to be approved or not approved. Well, frankly, when, when I hear somebody talking about teaching NCEA, I get a bit horrified because, of course, NCEA is an assessment system, not a curriculum. Mm-hmm. And really, if we're talking about teaching it, we should be talking about teaching the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's something to know about running assessments, but really it- that's an afterthought isn't it? It should be and one of the things that was very different for us coming back to New Zealand is in the UK we're familiar with working with multiple different forms of assessment so within any one school you might have been using the IB syllabus different forms of GCSE and A-level syllabuses in one of the schools I worked in we also had a different syllabus called pre-U And you had flexibility to choose which syllabus you wanted to use for which particular class or cohort, depending on their strengths and what the topic areas were and what matched their needs. And so to move between those different forms of assessment and syllabus was really part of being a teacher in the UK. So to come back to New Zealand where there's a single system and think that a roadblock to accessing the teaching workforce here was needing to work within that system Again, it, it doesn't really value the experience that a lot of our international teachers have, have of using those different forms of syllabus and assessment. Yeah. Well, here's hoping that we can get a more sensible approach to teacher recruitment because we really need more good quality teachers. And consistency. So yeah. you don't have those stories of my friend and I, where yeah. one person's in and one person's out. Yeah, quite right. I'd like to turn now to the work you do with Impact Lab and you are very focused on education there as well. So one of the things I understand you're doing is looking into the drivers of truancy in our schools, which is rife at the moment. We saw some data last week. I think it said that only a quarter of Māori students are attending at least 70% of the time. And some of that is due to the COVID lockdowns and people perhaps becoming disengaged during that period but actually when I've looked at the data 
the decline began well before COVID. It was back in about 2015, 2016, things started to head down and then non-attendance did spike in the last couple of years. But can you tell us a bit about that work that you're doing with truancy and what's causing it? So at Impact Lab, we are really with the crunch point of programs and interventions across New Zealand that are often working with rangatahi that are neat, so not in education, not in training, not in employment, and thinking how have we got to a situation where these young people have lost a sense of engagement with their school journey to the point that they are now unlikely to have a school-based qualification unless there's an intervention. And what Impact Lab does is think about what are the impacts on that person's life and the lives of their whānau and their communities when we don't allow them to make positive changes. So get kids through school, get kids into jobs, keep them off the streets, keep them out of the court system and the criminal justice system. So, you know, in New Zealand at the moment, we've got about 40% of kids not attending school. It's pretty shocking. Mm. And I think we just have to take a position of there are many, many drivers of truancy. It's a complex thing. Yes, there's COVID. Yes, there's been a, a general trend of disengagement. Yes, there's been increased sickness. But there are also things where we have kids with neurodiverse issues and that need support in schools that haven't been able to access it and then have parents decided to keep them home. We have issues where kids have become so used to learning from home that now their parents are sanctioning them staying at home. So it's a justified absence. They'd rather work on their internal at home and they ring school and say they're not feeling well. Mm. So we've got a diverse group of, you know, we can think of them as actors in the system. There's our teachers, there's our kids, there's our families, and there's the systems that are around them. And it's thinking, how can all of these groups work together as a team to re-engage our kids with education? So how, how do you go about, you know, gathering data and information for, for your analyses and, and how do you approach analysing it to, to draw conclusions? So what Impact Lab does is use the IDI, which is New Zealand's Integrated Data Infrastructure, and what that allows us to do is rather than starting analysis now and spending 10 or 15 years doing it and tracking someone's journey of what happens when you disengage from school, is it allows us to take data points and look backwards and say, okay, if we look at a cohort of people now who are unemployed, what was the likelihood looking backwards in the data that they also didn't achieve at school? I see. I might just fill in for our listeners here that the integrated database is a phenomenal social science analysis engine that we can use. It, it has data at the level of the individual across a whole range of areas, doesn't it? Including education, employment, health, justice, you name it. It's almost a complete record of everything the state knows about every individual in New Zealand. It is a really, really amazing tool for New Zealand and for social science research, and there's really nothing like it anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways I try and describe it to people that aren't familiar with it, because statistics can be a wee bit confusing and <laughs> difficult to access if it's not your background, is that we all have different numbers that we use regularly. They might be your NZQA number, it might be your tax number, it might be your NHI number. And typically these numbers don't actually talk to each other. So even though you know 
that the person who didn't achieve at school might now be the person that's the recipient of a welfare benefit or even if you know that the homeless person might be the person that's accessing the emergency department all of the time, without the IDI you couldn't tell that story in the data. But what the IDI does is it takes those numbers and it ties them back to one single randomised number Mm -hmm. so that you can track what's referred to as someone's lived experience through the system over time. And there are a huge number of precautions in place to make sure that this never impacts someone's privacy. So it's all highly anonymised information that allows us to see the lived experience of people through systems. So using this very powerful tool... You're tracing back across the uh, the data right to the beginning of their life and maybe even looking at their parents' background, the circumstances into which they were born, what kind of early childhood experience they had, including any health problems or other sensory deficits or whatever it might be, whatever record there might be at how they went at primary school, perhaps how their parents' income tracks over time, these kinds of variables. You would need someone far more expert than me to give you a clear answer on that. But I I would probably refer to the process of putting the EQI there as being the thing that I've seen the most that reveals some of the the level of variables that you can look at. So um, the the EQI being the the equity index, the the replacement for the decile system. Absolutely. In in that you see a list of about 37 criteria that have been pulled from the IDI to construct those new values that will be used for school funding. Right. So what have you found from this analysis about what is driving truancy and and the the school non-attendance problem? Impact Lab's really focused on helping organisations make positive change. So when you're looking at those drivers of what is really causing truancy, that is really more what I've been looking at in my own research processes. And I think what I see there is it's all about school engagement Mm -hmm. and it's about building a sense of place and space and acceptance and belonging early on in a student's journey so that they have that relationship to fall back on and it's essential that it's at primary and intermediate school. And we're not really going to see quick fire fixes to truancy problems because rebuilding that engagement takes a long time. In the research I've looked at, it says it takes about six years to really see a shift in the dial on school engagement. So just to be clear, this is not IDI work, but you're, you're looking at the research literature on this, is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. okay. And it, it doesn't come as a surprise to me at all because human beings like other organisms are highly motivated by learning and so if a child is at school and feels as if he or she is making progress then that is motivating that that will result in them wanting to attend so what is it that our school system is lacking i mean obviously enough if if you're saying that engagement is a key and we're having problems with truancy then that might lead us to suspect that disengagement is at least a strong part of that story. So I guess the question is what what should schools do differently to re-engage hearing what you're saying about it taking time? Mm. I think reflecting back on my own experience as a teacher I always knew that teaching was an amazing career and one that required you know highly skilled individuals but it wasn't until I came out of teaching 
that I really realised what a powerful skill set teachers have and the demands that we put on them in the classroom every day, even though I was doing it myself. But if you think for a teacher, they might have, in my case as a, a specialist teacher, five or six different classes of up to 20 children coming through their doors a day. You can be dealing with 100, 110 individuals and they are essentially all their own project now that I work in a business world. They have their own needs, they're on their own journey, they need their own communication strategy, you need to understand them and be able to deliver what they need to create change in their educational trajectory. Like that caseload, if you think about it like that, is absolutely huge. And how do we create enough time in our teachers' days for them to meaningfully manage that caseload and help shift each kid a little bit further along in their progress? And I mean, for a primary teacher, they may have the same class all day, but they're changing subjects and the needs of their kids are changing as they move through different subject areas as well. So I feel like we need to think about how we create time for our teachers to be able to deeply engage with kids because they know how to do that. Right. I mean, a couple of thoughts about that. One is with the the modern learning environments, the, the very large-scale classrooms with perhaps 120 children and four or five teachers looking after them, that challenge seems to be compounded because now you have a much larger caseload, even though it might be shared between several teachers, and I suppose they could organise it so that they were each responsible for understanding in depth you know, a proportion of those children. But it, it seems to me more likely in that environment that the needs of particular individuals might be below the radar. Mm. I used to think that I didn't support modern learning environments. As a student, I always hated being in bigger environments that were noisy and often a little bit more chaotic. But as I've come through my teaching career, I've seen fantastic examples of modern learning environments working really well. Mm. And I think often it comes down to the teachers, it comes down to the team, it comes down to the setup. And we should really be facilitating our schools and our teachers to make the choice that works for them in their space. Right. And if, if you're working in that space and you love it, then often your kids are making progress because otherwise you wouldn't be enjoying it so much yourself. The thing I'm, I've been really interested at looking in the research is this idea of pupil-teacher ratios that's been a big part of the research in some of the northern European countries. And so putting that lens over it, it would be saying, if you had the modern learning environment, what is the optimum ratio right. of pupils to teachers to make that work really well? And that would apply similarly in a single-cell classroom. What is your optimum ratio so that teachers have the right amount of time to be able to invest in students and that that will look different across different students some students need more time than others but it's making sure that we leave that space for teachers to be able to make those judgments right so obviously if a teacher has fewer children to look after he or she is going to be able to devote more time to each one of them I also think though of the amount of extras that teachers have to do, the amount of extra work that doesn't really necessarily have much to do with direct engagement with children. So because, for example, our curriculum is a very loose structure, teachers have to be curriculum developers. They have to put a lot of time into lesson planning and, and how to structure learning over time. Is that something that we could make easier for them if we had a more structured curriculum, for example? Absolutely. I, th I think we should be able to give teachers the time they need through tools like 
better guidance on the knowledge that should be taught at even any given year at school. Teachers, I feel, it, it's a skill set that we don't necessarily cover in initial teacher education, how to create your own vibrant, informed, matching curriculum resources that are also going to feed into your assessment structures. And yet when we come out of Teachers College, that's one of the things we spend the most time doing. And I know for me as a teacher, it was always trying to make them visually appealing as well so that the kids wanted to engage with it and could feel a sense of connection to some of the content. So I I would really support the idea of having a a curriculum that was able to be accessed by teachers in a way that reduced the need for them to always be trying to generate curricular content. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that seems to be taking increasing amounts of teachers' time is dealing with some of the background issues in in young people's lives. And I guess that's always been part of teaching because, of course, you want teachers to be engaging the person, not just seeing them as, as a being who's in their classroom for six hours a day and then is gone. But nonetheless, if we have a, a, a background of social problems that is ramping up over time, that, that does increase the pressures on teachers. W- would you agree with that? Is that an issue for teachers at the moment? Absolutely. I mean, you can't start teaching multiplication and division to a child in your class that hasn't come to school in a position ready to learn. And teachers are working to understand what's going on for kids and families all the time. And if you go out into schools and see what teachers are doing, I know teachers who are taking home clothes and washing them, teachers who and schools who are providing food for their kids for before and after school support for families, helping their kids learn to emotionally regulate and understand feelings and emotions in class, all of these things before you can actually sit down and start learning. Mm. But, I mean, to our conversation about pupil-teacher ratios, it's not just about how the teacher can deliver a teaching and learning experience, how many kids there are in the class. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of John Hattie's effect size yeah. research that says class size isn't the biggest driver of student outcomes. I was going to mention that. Uh, but, yeah. you know, when, when we think about it from the point of a teacher, when there are more kids in front of you, each part of your day becomes bigger and more complex because there's, there's greater diversity, so therefore a greater need to differentiate your learning from different groups. You might have up to three or four curricular years worth of different learners in your class that you're trying to tailor to. That means the same, again, number of resources to be preparing for all these different groups and different forms of assessment and feeding back and the number of reports that you're writing. And so the workload for teachers coming out from class sizes is huge and there's interesting research from around the world about what class sizes look like and what it means so some of the Asian countries have much much bigger class sizes but are delivering great outcomes in terms of educational achievement but that's because of how society is structured and how kids are coming in and the behaviours that they're showing that's enabling that, that's not right for a New Zealand context. It doesn't make sense in our context. No. I mean, it is one of the things about those meta-analyses, as they're called, that kind of work that John Hattie did, that it it does gloss over a whole lot of differences. So a meta-analysis for our listeners is where you get a whole lot of different research studies, each looking at the impact of various variables on learning and then put it into a big statistical engine and you estimate the overall impact of various factors. And as you're saying, Emma, you know, if you're putting in studies that are conducted in Singapore and 
Finland, along with ones that are conducted in New Zealand, then you may conclude on average that class size doesn't have that big an impact. But if you look at, for example, low decile schools in New Zealand, you may find something quite different. Mm. And we have to think about all the different outcomes that are attached to this type of research as well, because educational achievement is one outcome to think about and whether class size impacts educational achievement. But let's think about the full gambit, because what does class size do for teacher retention? What does class size do for teacher well-being? What does class size do for whānau engagement with school? What does class size do for our extracurricular programs that we're able to offer? What does class size do for burnout? So there's lots of drivers there to think about, but one of the things that I'm really interested in thinking about at the moment is some of the achievement data that's been coming out that we've been looking at, especially with the NCEA pilot of literacy and numeracy, and thinking about, you know, how is this all part of the story? Because what we see in some of the data is that there's a trend of achievement dropping over time. So, for example, you know, if we look at some of the writing, reading, maths, science achievement data, I think some of this you're very familiar with, but... In writing, for example, 63% of year four kids being at or above curriculum, 35% of year eight kids, and then when we get through to NCEA and look at this pilot um, material for writing, 2% of decile one kids. So what is happening over time from year four through to year eight through to these kids doing NCEA, that means there is just a steady decline in their educational achievement. And what are the levers that we can pull to start to lift that achievement? Because honestly, if some of if the NCEA pilots go ahead and we bring those in in a couple of years' time and actually are facing the reality of a huge number of children not actually passing what is that going to do for the future of our workforce if we yeah. have a, thousands of children coming out without achieving school qualifications? And I appreciate they can be done in any year at school, but there's really no excuses for allowing 13 years of public education to fail to shift the dial for our kids. Absolutely right. And when you say declining over time, I mean, we know that New Zealand has been declining over time relative to how well it did in the past, we can tell that from PISA. But I think what you mean is that as a child grows older, he or she is more and more likely to fall behind curriculum expectations. That That's what you mean, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, the journey of the child through our education system. So they're, they're simply not making progress fast enough to keep up with curriculum expectations. and And that is really critical with things like literacy and numeracy but, but if we think that reading becomes a really important tool to access the wider curriculum and writing is a really important tool to develop one's thinking, then the fact that more and more of our young people are falling behind the expected level as they progress through school means that they're less and less able to access that wider curriculum and less and less able to develop the kind of thinking that's expected. Mm, absolutely. And it's not only that they're falling behind, it's that that's not changing. Because often when I'm working with services with an impact lab perspective, one of the first barriers for us to understanding what engagement looks like for a service that's trying to make a change in a community is what data do we need to collect? How do we collect this data? How do we understand this data to tell our story, to to 
understand if we're creating any impact. But here with our education data, it's all out in front of us. We can see the achievement data declining over time. We can see that truancy rates are declining over time. And it feels a little bit like we're all sitting here watching it with our hands up in the air when actually it's not acceptable to see it decline over time. And it's also not an excuse to, to throw this back on our teachers and say, no, teachers are overseeing a decline of education standards in New Zealand because actually our teachers are dealing with an enormously difficult yeah. situation in their classrooms with kids coming in sometimes not ready to learn, kids that are facing socioeconomic challenges, just kids that are facing poverty, behavioural issues. That our teachers are absolutely at the coal face yes. and the intersection of society, economic, health pressures right now and we're still expecting them to deliver these very comprehensive interventions essentially yep. to help kids get on track with curriculum. So it, it's it's a very, very complex issue for our teachers. It certainly isn't their fault. I mean, they may, may not have been provided with the best tools for teaching literacy and numeracy when they were trained. We have to do something about that. I, I completely agree with you. We can't possibly just sit by and watch this happen. We need to help teachers, to help the children. And, and that means, to me, a massive PD program on how to teach literacy better. That has to be resourced. But the consequences of not resourcing, I mean, this goes to your the, the philosophy of your organisation in a way, Impact Lab, the social investment approach where you you invest in the future by putting in some money to something that has a massive impact down the track. Now, what could be more the case than in that way than, than literacy. Education is the greatest social mobility tool that we have. Yes. If we want to see greater equity in society, if we want people to be able to move from society and escape some of these cycles of intergenerational poverty, education is absolutely the tool to resource those children with so that they can access a future that enables them to really achieve their full potential. Thinking about, you know, the what are the drivers as a system that we can pull, I feel like initial teacher education and professional development is a huge lever that we need to pull yeah. to make sure that our teachers that are going out have all of the skills that they need to be successful in their classrooms. And curriculum is therefore the, the next one so that the, our teachers have the skills and then they have the tools to deliver. I think that's a, an excellent note to end on, Emma. Thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much.